Really, really good to be here with you. We're diving right in. Uh, Revelation chapters 2 and 3. So we're picking up the pace a little bit here. One more study that's going to be a little bit familiar. It's a little bit of the easier stuff to understand before we dive into what you might call the juicy parts of Revelation chapters 4 and on. All at a pace so that we can read and understand Revelation on its terms. We don't want to put this in some kind of a box. We want to read Revelation on its terms. So there's a chart, a very straightforward way of looking at the content of these chapters. If you grabbed a bulletin, the chart is also in there. It'll be on the screens here. Um, There is a chart-like approach that you could take to chapters 2 and 3. You could look at it and say, okay, Jesus talks to this church and here are the strengths and failures and instructions and and promises. Um, And even though you can take a chart-like approach to chapters two and three, I'm going to have it taken off the screens. So for those of you that were like the student wanting to, to catch the answers in class before they get off the screens, it's gone now. Because tonight, you don't want me helping you fill in the chart. You got Google for that. You can Google the seven churches of Revelation and find that exact chart. That's not what we need to be spending our time on. What we need to be spending our time on is is some of the deeper insights of how is this, not just, just how would I fill out a chart, how is this supposed to feel? Because apocalyptic literature and revelation is not just supposed to be a statement of facts and, and things on a chart. It's supposed to elicit emotions and awaken things within us. When you read through Revelations chapter 2 and 3, they can feel very familiar. Like, I've read books of the Bible that sound like this. Ephesians, Corinthians, other New Testament epistles. And that's consistent since at its core, the whole book of Revelation is a set of letters to the churches. So it's consistent that at least part of it can feel like that. But unlike the other epistles, it's who this letter is from that sets it apart. We've got epistles from from Paul, lots of those, and Peter, and even John. But, But this one is letters to the church from who? I think the correct answer is Jesus. From Jesus, the glorified Christ. John is is like the medium. John's the scribe. But the content, the insight, and the encouragements, and the challenges are directly from Jesus himself. This is why it was so important what we've learned already when, when John was kind of spiritually overcome spiritual quality, divine quality control of, of what he was sensing because Jesus wanted his exact words to the local church to be discerned through John. Um, divine quality control over this message. These words are precisely from the glorified Christ. Maybe your Bible has red letter verses. If it does, chapters two and three are in many of our Bibles. That's the modern commentator's way of saying, these are words of Jesus himself. And those, um, 
the Holy Spirit, as the Holy Spirit dictated through Scripture. But, but these two chapters are from the glorified Christ himself, directly to the seven churches. And even more than that, these are love letters from the groom to his bride. From a devoted, faithful groom awaiting his bride. And I'm not just trying to be extra romantic as I say that. Once you've read the whole book of Revelation, especially considering how it ends, you'll see Jesus himself views his relationship with his church like a wedding day, like a marriage, with the church as his bride and her groom as Christ. In fact, I even find significant that the terms groom and bride are used in our English translations and not husband and wife. In many ways, obviously, those can be synonymous because my beautiful bride is also my beautiful wife, but the difference in groom and bride versus husband and wife has to do, groom usually happens on centering around, revolving around one particular day, one particular event, the wedding day. A wedding day. And that's fitting because Revelation really casts the church's gaze to one promised glorious celebration of a wedding day. At the culmination of history and the beginning of a renewed creation. Revelation 19, 7 through 9. Let us rejoice and exalt and give him the glory for the marriage of the lamb has come. And his bride has made herself ready. Revelation 21, 2, and I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. Hosea 2, 19 through 20, it's not just Revelation that talks like this. I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice, in steadfast love and in mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness, and you shall know the Lord. So what we are reading in these next two chapters, Revelation chapters 2 and 3, can come off as merely courtroom findings. Here's next up is Laodicea, and let me see what I see in you. Let me see what is good. Let me see what is challenging. It can come off as just kind of courtroom black and white findings if we neglect that this is supposed to come across as letters from a devoted, faithful husband, anticipating, excitedly waiting, and fully faithful to his beloved. That's actually why this week is going to be a little lighter in terms of media support on the screen passages. Anyone can Google a chart. That's not what we need to be spending our time together. We want to know what is this supposed to feel like. So right here in the middle, I want to pray, God, take over my soul right now. Help me go deeper, maybe even than I was prepared to go. Help me not just study or cover or teach Revelation chapters 2 and 3. Help me feel it. For your glory, we pray these things, Jesus. This is a groom with unwavering love for his bride. 
a God with unwavering love for his people. As chapter three, verse 19 says, those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. Now, you and I are gonna bristle at that a bit because for discipline to be an act of love in our modern enlightened relational viewpoint feels pretty icky. But this is perfect in love, perfect in insight, perfect in control and action from a God presenting his beloved with critically necessary encouragements and challenges. Any preacher or prophet from Derry Northrup to Francis Chan to Billy Graham to John Mel, I just wanted to include myself in that list of names, so fun things you can do with a mic. Any preacher can try to give something from the word of God to a people and hope that it hits and hope that it is exactly what those people needed to hear. But this revelation, especially the letters to the church, is perfect insight. If it's discipline, it's perfect discipline. If they're encouragements, it's perfect encouragements. Discipline with love because the love of Jesus acts and the love of Jesus speaks. Jesus knows exactly who these people are and what they're facing. He knows exactly how to see what their struggles are and meet them in the midst of that in love and tell them, you need to heed my cautions. Parents, Anytime you've ever tried to do that with children or grandchildren, you try to caution them and it's really important that they know you're not just being stern, it's actually out of love that you're doing that. That's what this needs to feel like. If God has a caution, an encouragement or a challenge for the church, it's from the glorified Christ, it's perfect. So listen to it. That's what we're reading here in these two chapters. Critical, precise, insightful words from the glorified Christ to his beloved people. And then if you have your Bibles or Bible apps, go ahead and just humor me for a moment and kind of flip over to chapter four. We're not gonna cover it tonight, but just chip or flip over to chapter four there and just start browsing, scanning a little bit. Just look at the words, look at the phrases, look at the sentences. Because if chapters two and three feel like an epistle, very quickly, it's like spiritual whiplash. And chapter four launches us off. You want to wait for the juicy parts of Revelation. Chapter four on is going to get a little weird. (laughs) And I love it. Not sounding familiar like any of the New Testament epistles anymore. So how does all this fit together? I kind of have to ask, what happened between the end of chapter three and the beginning of chapter four, if we're not careful, it can feel like the author John just kind of hallucinated and and got carried away and the rest of Revelation is just something else other than what he began in chapters one through three. But what we have to remember is all 22 chapters of Revelation are Jesus's letter to the church. 
It's not like Jesus' letter to the church, the seven churches of Revelation, started in chapters one through three and then something else took over for the rest of the book. It's all the critical, necessary feelings, emotions, visions, and message to the seven churches that they needed to hear. This whole thing, all 22 chapters of Revelation is the letter of Revelation, the letter to the churches. So for this week, when we pick up the glorified Christ's words to each of these churches in their situations, each of these seven churches, I want us to pause for a moment and reflect on the craziness that there were seven churches in these areas to write to. Written before the end of the first century, less than a hundred years after Jesus' life, even before old man John's time was over, look how this message of Jesus has spread over the course of just one lifetime, John's lifetime. Starting off, of course, with Jerusalem and then the surrounding regions out to significant multitudes of people spreading across Western Asia, modern-day Turkey. It's impressive how quickly the movement of Jesus has spread. Quite the expansion. But if I'm John or I'm one of the early church leaders, I might start to think, Maybe we've, we've gotten diluted a little bit as this thing spread. If you've read chapters 2 and 3 of Revelation, or you've read ahead, or you are familiar with what they say, Jesus has some serious issues in the church. <laughs> this thing, as it has spread, it's amazing how widely it has spread, but this thing is maybe starting to lose a little bit of its, its core. There are some serious problems in the churches. The people of the church tolerating cults in their midst. Blatant false teachings, idolatry, sexual immorality, or maybe even worse of all, the church has just kind of flamed out. They've lost their passion. They've lost their zeal. Worldly riches and worldly comforts have made them spiritually impoverished and lazy. So this is where that's not just gossip traveling around in accusations about the church, like we may see today, or negative Google reviews, or anonymous connection cards. This is what Jesus sees in his church. Not good. The expansion of the church is losing a lot of its integrity, the spiritual quality control that is essential to its core message. So this is where if I'm John or I'm any of the other church leaders during that time, I'm starting to ask questions. Is it time to maybe scale this thing back a little bit? Is it time to rein it in a little bit? Because this is really getting diluted. And if I'm in charge, I'm asking those questions. But we learned something at the tail end of last week. Who's in charge? Is John in charge? Are the church leaders in charge? Jesus is the head of the church. This is why every week builds on itself in this study. Jesus is leading the mission. Jesus is their leader. He is the head of the church then and now. He's in charge. So when there's correction and repentance that's needed in his church, he is alive 
week one. And he will speak to his church this week. Jesus is in control and he is the head of the church. And when he needs to speak, he does. This is his epistle. He understands completely everything that's going on. And rather than just washing his hands of the whole thing, he speaks in love. So in a moment, pretty briefly, I'm going to look at an overview of the churches and and where they had some particular strengths and struggles and and then further notes to draw out from that. But I'm also going to bookend this brief overview that we're about to do in covering the seven churches by saying this, whenever a person feels like Jesus's words to a particular church sound like they could be Jesus's words for you or the the season of faith that you're in, I would say pay special attention to that section. If you're reading Jesus's words to the church in Sardis and you're going, man, (laughs) that cut through the core of me. That's like Jesus is, is speaking just to me. I would say take the rest of the week and focus on that section. Grab a journal, grab a commentary, go deeper in that. Because that's what it's supposed to do in you and I. We're not supposed to read this like it's a mere textbook and say, man, the church back then had some serious problems. He's alive still, amen? He's still speaking to his church. And if he's tugging on your heart saying, this wasn't just a message for people back then, John. It's a message for you right now. Will you listen to me? The groom is speaking. Will his bride listen? So maybe take, take extra commentary or different books or journal and allow it to hit you to your core like he intends. And by the way, probably try to avoid always identifying with Philadelphia. The reason is that if you've read before, Philadelphia is the only church of the seven that Jesus has nothing bad to say about. And if you find yourself in a season, you know, man, I just keep finding that Jesus really has nothing bad to say about me. That might be true, but I promise you, you will only know whether that's true if you're in an extreme season of trials and suffering. That's when you'll know. That's how God refines it. It's what he tells us in his word. That's when they knew. Okay, to the angel, the messenger, the the mouthpiece of Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. I've got a map. Uh, Can we throw that map up here? It's of these seven churches. That's the chart. Go to the map if you can. There we go. Uh, John was on the island called Patmos. It's the only entity there highlighted in pink. And then straight kind of north and, and a little bit east is Ephesus. That's the first church he addresses. And then conveniently, it goes just counterclockwise to Thyatira, or to Smyrna, to Pergamum, to Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and then Laodicea. And so it starts with the church of Laodicea, my letter, or sorry, of Ephesus, my letter to Ephesus. We know a lot about this local church. So because of that, we're able to spend a little bit more time with these guys. It was the most significant city of the Roman Empire of these seven churches. The fourth largest city in the whole empire after Rome and Alexandria and Antioch. 
And the followers of Jesus had this significant Vegas-like city in their missional crosshairs. Jesus sends his people out to be conquerors, not crusaders, conquerors in his name with their swords, the words of their testimony, and the truth of his kingdom, and even the blood of the persecuted. Ephesus was a mighty spiritual clash. If you want to know when the cosmic forces kind of, kind of do their thing and battle happens, what does that battleground look like? What does that battlefield look like? Ephesus is an answer to that question. We won't cover the details now, but you can read Acts chapters 19 and then 20 as well. And based on the letter that Paul wrote to this group of believers, the letter we have called Ephesians, there's a lot of familiarity that we can develop with real people and real struggles and real opportunities in Ephesus. To his people in Ephesus, as you maybe scan through the first part of chapter two, Jesus says, keep your good work going. Good job. Endure the persecution pressing back against you and make sure that as a solid foundation, all the while you're remaining true in your first love. Here's what I see. Here's what Jesus sees. After the founders of your churches have died, those that are picking up in their stead are losing their zeal, losing their passion. Maybe they're doing church Things and even serving and reaching the community around them, but Jesus accurately sees their motives as corrupt. And maybe you're going, well, how do you know that Jesus is accurately seeing their motives as corrupt? It's the glorified Jesus. It's the definition of accuracy. Chapter 2, verse 7, To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life which is in the paradise of God. What a reward. We're going to revisit that in the final week, week eight. But first off, you can't miss the militaristic language of this specific message to Ephesus. Jesus is a conqueror. His kingdom is in a battle. His church then and now is engaged in a battle and this would be blatantly obvious to the people in Ephesus enduring heavy persecution like, like they would know all too well. I said it in week one and we're going to keep it in front of us to the point that by the time you finally get tired of me saying it, at least you've remembered it, that Revelation was written in and to an environment of heavy persecution, a key to understanding that. So Jesus, to that group of people, says, To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. You remember the second key all the way back to week one? The second key to understanding Revelation? First is, or one of them, don't know first or second, doesn't really matter. Uh, one of them was that it was written in into an environment of heavy persecution, and the other was that it was written with a heavy, drawing heavily on the Old Testament. So with an Old Testament mind, we need to hear that and read that the tree of life in the paradise of God, that's Genesis. The Garden of Eden, maybe you recall there were two specific trees 
in the perfect expanse of Eden, the tree of life and then the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Eating from the tree of life represented eternal, unending life with God. And then eating of the other one brought the realization of good and evil, and we know how Adam and Eve did with that one. But as a reward to the conquering church, those people back in Ephesus 2,000 years ago and to his church still today, anyone who has an ear, let him hear what Jesus is saying to the churches. There is a reward that the glorified Christ extends to us to regain access and nourishment and unparalleled pleasure from that tree. Eternal paradise, a restored heaven and a restored earth, a fresh heaven and a fresh earth, eating from the tree of life and thus living forever with God. That's your reward, conquering church. Sign me up for that. Let's be conquerors for that. Let's endure for that. So there's some good stuff there in Jesus's letter to his beloved in Ephesus. Now, at least I don't know as much about the other six churches. And for those of you that are excited to fill out a chart with the content of strengths and instructions and so on, I'm not going to fill out for you the details for the other churches like I kind of did for Ephesus. But with the persecution background and drawing heavily from the Old Testament, take some time for yourself this week and read through these two chapters and just look at the ways these early believers were addressed directly by Jesus. Our job is to, to study and open this book, see how necessary and approachable it still is for believers, and then release the church to continue to explore it more. And that's what we're trying to do with this study. Next church addressed after Ephesus, Smyrna believers you are enduring poverty for the sake of your faith. How rich that makes you in the kingdom. You have no idea how rich that makes you in the kingdom. Way to model Christ-like humility and servanthood. It's honestly gonna get harder. But your reward, your endurance is heavenly. Church in Pergamum, this message is coming to you from the one with the sword. Ephesians 6, 17, Hebrews 4, 12, Revelation 1, 16 that we covered last week set the basis that the sword is the only offensive weapon in the kingdom. The word of God, the message wielded not by hands like the world fights, but by words, testimonies, truth, and grace, and love. And then he says it again twice to the church in Pergamum. Verse 12, the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. And then also in verse 16, if you do not repent of false teaching and sexual immorality, I will come to you soon and war against those that do not heed my warnings with the sword of my mouth. You and I don't like tough love challenges from Jesus. 
We like Psalm 23, right? We like the God that leads us beside quiet, still waters. But when the people of the church are openly tolerating cults and permitting false teachings and theology and things that God has said by his word to take seriously, he will speak and challenge and caution the church back then and still today. He's lovingly, seriously, and directly calling out. The groom is calling out the bride to repent. Turn around. This is one of the things after this whole study is over. This is one of those things. We should see repentance as an invitation to something better, not a sense of shame. When the church calls the people of the church to heed conviction and repent, don't hang your head. Raise your head and walk into that better life. That's how conviction should feel in light of revelation. God, thank you for teaching me and telling me how not to go down that road. So important. Over the next couple of weeks, we'll really see why repentance is so important. Let's keep going. Thyatira people, you're constantly improving. So make sure you too continue to endure and take seriously the corrections that I'm giving you. You've got serious issues with teachers and influencers that you're allowing to go unchecked in your midst. It's my church and I will rebuke and even deal with anybody that leads my people astray. Make sure you're not one of them. Be discerning and hold fast. Your reward for endurance is great. Sardis believers, we've got a problem. There are only a few of you that are even still spiritually alive. When spiritual lethargy, when spiritual laziness crept into your life, that was a critical symptom that you're dying and you paid no attention to it. Your laziness and faith was a gateway drug to unfaithfulness now. Wake up, my beloved people. I love you and I'm writing to you because I need you to turn back to me. I'm not done pursuing you, church. Don't be done pursuing me. Philadelphia people, my Philly people, you're the apple of my eye. Okay, I know you might be searching your scripture going, I I don't see him saying that. He doesn't say it here, um, but based on the strengths that he points out to those people and without any mentioned struggles, it allows me to do a little side note that I learned recently from listening to the guys over at Bible Project on a podcast. Psalm 17 verse eight says this, keep me as the apple of your eye, hide me in the shadow of your wings. Deuteronomy 32.10, he kept him as the apple of his eye. And Zechariah 2.8, he who touches you touches the apple of his eye. It's an affectionate term. It's a saying, it's an endearing Hebrew description that painted the picture like this. This is, this is so cool. When you are really, really physically close to someone, so close to them that you can actually see a reflection of yourself in their eyes. Try it right now with the person next to you. No, just kidding. That's weird. 
You have to be really, really close to someone to see a reflection of yourself in their eyeball. But there's actually a a translation problem here because somewhere Apple came into this in our language and it kind of messes things up. Because the expression in Hebrew literally meant the little man of his eye, the Adam, which was Adam, which meant man mistranslated as as apple. When you are that close to someone and you can see yourself reflected in their eyeballs, you can see a tiny reflection of yourself dancing around in their eyes, that's how closely God watches you and wants to see himself that intimately in you. And that's why I think it's appropriate to bring this apple of his eye thing up when he's talking to the church in Philadelphia. He's saying, church in Philadelphia, I am so intimately close to you. And you know what I see? I see myself. That's so good. The little man of his eye. And lastly, Laodicea. I got nothing good to say about you. Uh (laughs) Uh-oh. You're not even that rebellious, Jesus says. You're just, you're not hot or cold. You're not worldly, but you're not spiritual. I almost wish that you were one or the other. In fact, I do wish that you were one or the other. I actually preached on this this last weekend. Jesus is saying, I wish you would just pick a side, church. And he's still saying that. But as it is, you're bland, he says to the church in Laodicea. And I will spit you out of my mouth. Is there any chance you've ever been in a season where those might be Jesus's words to you? You're not hot, you're not cold, you're just bland. It's pretty harsh, but it's necessary to hear the accurate, insightful, perfect words of the glorified Christ to his beloved people when we are living spiritually apathetic and just bland, lukewarm. Jesus is Savior based on some decision I may have made at some point in the past, but is he really Lord in my life? What do the actions of my life show? Am I hot, cold, or lukewarm? In fact, it can be harsh but necessary to hear accurate, insightful, perfect words of the glorified Christ to his beloved church whenever we resemble any of these seven churches. Well, probably more like six. Not that hard when you're living life like Philadelphia. And so let me repeat, whenever a person feels like, man, those words of Jesus to that group of people back then feel like they could be words of Jesus to me in my life or me in my church right now, pay attention to that. Listen and feel what the groom is wanting to say to his beloved. They're good words. Don't bristle at divine conviction like we do when other people try to convict us. His words are necessary. 
If he's quickening your heart to pay attention, let it sink in. Blessed is the person that reads this and acts accordingly. So after a lofty introduction, chapter 1, and before the meat of Revelation, which is going to pick up in in chapter 4 on, sits this practical, loving guidance to his church. I love that. And these letters also speak to us practically, real churches with real challenges, prophetically with discernment and insight into timeless possibilities, and personally, implications that cut right to our souls. Practically, prophetically, and personally, as the end of chapter three says, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To that I say, amen. Let that be true in my life, God. So let me end this week with something that he says to the last church of Laodicea. This is is such a cool ending. We've already pointed out uh, chapter 3, verse 19, where he says, Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. And then he says this in verse 20. Behold, remember, this was to the church in Laodicea. Behold, church, I stand at your door, the door, and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. This is Jesus at the door knocking. Every moment of your existence, Jesus is at the door of your heart knocking. Is he a guest? Someone that you should, should be polite to. You smile and, and you might say warm, hospitable things, but you know they're just a guest. They're not staying. Jesus is knocking on the door of your heart. Is he just a guest? Jesus is knocking at the door of your heart. Is he a salesman? He's just here to peddle something. I can't stand these experiences. They are always awkward. When a salesman shows up at a door, it's always like, get your spiel done so that I can close the door and move on with my life. Jesus is knocking at the door of your heart. Is he a salesman? Just something he wants to peddle out of my life, some agenda that he has for me. Jesus is knocking at the door of your heart. Is he a guest? Is he a salesman? Or is he master? That when he knocks on the door of your heart and you see it's him, joy erupts because the master has come home. It's it's hardly even appropriate to invite him in because this place is his anyways. I want you to think about that. Jesus knocking at the door of your heart, just like he was for these seven churches. Is he a guest? Not gonna be here for long. Is he a salesman just trying to get me to do something and buy something? Or is he the master that has returned home? So with that, three weeks in, three chapters down, 
And I admit we took them pretty slowly, at least in comparison to how we're going to take the next few weeks, because we can only make sense of what it is to follow or what's going to follow here if we allow these three chapters to do their work in us and set the tone for the overall context of the book. So we, we need to see how the chapters that follow the meat of Revelation are still part of Jesus's letters to the seven churches. So with that, uh, for the beloved groom, for the master of the house to offer his life for his bride deserves remembrance and honoring and worship. So would you, I invite you to stand with me. If you have your communion elements, let's, let's grab those. Let's respond in worship. I'm going to invite you to actually close your eyes here for these final moments. I don't want this just to be a study or an overview for you. I want you to hear what the groom says to his beloved. No, more than hearing, I want you to feel the unwavering, faithful love that Jesus has for his church. And on the night he was betrayed, he, he took the bread and he broke it and he said, this is my body broken for you. As often as you do this, remember me. Jesus, we remember you and the breaking of your body as we take the bread. Precious, precious blood shed on the cross by people just like me. And you knew it, and you endured it all so that you as the living one could continue to come after my heart. And I could know that because of your blood being shed, I am cleansed. I am able to be present before you on that wedding day, God, as your beloved. Not faithful because the merits of my life were faithful, but faithful because your blood covered me. Hallelujah. Let's take that and remember and celebrate that. Amen, Jesus. Help us see and feel your truth of scripture and your love. In your name for your glory. Amen. Amen. We're done about 10 minutes early, so uh, if you have kids that are still with TSM or Boys Club, Girls Club, just, just linger. We'll see you guys next week. <laughs>